Matthew pronounced every one of those names wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't even know if he did or not. Neither do you. So, anyways, I'm just kidding. Um, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you uh, that you are a, you are worthy. You are worthy of so much more than we could ever give or say, God. But you do you choose to 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 stoop down to us that you come down to us and and that you uh, are with us and that you long to be with us, that you make it um, a priority to be with us at all times. It's the reason why you sent Jesus. It's the reason why we have the Spirit. And so God, I, I pray that we would understand right now as we sit here and listen and sing these songs, um, that the Spirit's with us, that you are with us. And so I pray that you would uh, open our ears to hear, uh, give us minds to understand, um, and just give us a, a real means of, of your presence amongst us. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, 2020, uh, Emory University professor of philosophy, George Yancey, did an interview series that you can still look up online in the New York Times titled, Conversations on Death. And in this series, he interviewed 12 religious scholars about how they view death through their particular worldview. So he interviewed uh, a Buddhist, uh, a Muslim, a Catholic, an atheist, um, someone who, who practiced Taoism, um, and, and on, on the list goes. But he asked them the same series of questions, and it's a pretty interesting interview series. But he asked them questions like this. What is death, according to your worldview? Why do we fear death? Is death final? Do we have immortal souls? And then, what role does death play in how we ought to live our lives? Which is an important question that I think our text answers for us today. As, in, as an introduction to his series, uh, Professor Yancey, who is not a Christian, uh, wrote his own opinion piece titled, Facing the Fact of My Death. And it's a reflection of how he thinks about his own impending death and how that affects his day-to-day life. And within his article, he shares what he likes to tell his students each semester concerning death. So he's a professor at Emory, right up the street from us. But he says this to his students every year. He says, I make a resolute effort to remind my students that all of us, at some point, sooner or later, will become rotting corpses. So it's like, welcome to, to college. Um, that I explain is the great equalizer. No matter how smart, brilliant, wealthy, beautiful, and fit you are, no matter how great your MCAT, LSAT, or GPA scores, no matter your religious or political orientation, we will all perish. Which is true. Every one of those words is true. Because death is the one thing that we all have in common. We will all die. It's the way we look at death that differs. Albert Camus was a a French writer and philosopher who held, held to the ideas of existentialism. So existentialism is the philosophical belief that we are each responsible for creating purpose or meaning in our own lives... So meaning there's no outside help from God 
or government or family or anyone else. It is completely and utterly up to us to make our way in this world. So this is why Camus speaks of what he calls the conscious certainty of a death without hope. A conscious certainty of a death without hope. Meaning that in the end, our death brings no hope for us because there's no afterlife or anyone else because our life is over. Our purpose is finished. But Abraham's death is far from one that is without hope. He's not caught unawares by the collapsing bridge of death. In fact, he's actually prepared for it in every single way possible. Because again, he's been resting in these promises of God even as he faces death. In chapter 15, if you remember, this is the last Sunday in Genesis, by the way, until next year. But uh, if you can remember back to chapter 15... Uh, Abraham was promised a death at a ripe old age. And in in chapter 17, Abraham was promised many nations would come from him. And in in our chapter today, while while some of this is not fully fulfilled, in our chapter today, we see both of these come to fruition. So in verses 1 through 6, we see in this genealogy that Matthew read for us, the birth of many nations coming from Abraham. The promise is coming true, at least the beginning of it. And then in verse 8, we are told that Abraham died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. So here is a man who has walked by faith and not by sight faithfully throughout much of his life. And it's through Abraham's life that we learn much about the Almighty God and his plan to make a people for himself in Christ. Because Abraham is pointing way forward into the future, to this future Messiah. The the snake crusher is coming. But it's also in Abraham's death that we can learn a couple of things as well. That the end of life for the Christian is not the conscious certainty of a death without hope. Rather, it is the conscious certainty of death with hope because of two realities. So two points today. One is the passing of the baton of faith to the next generation. And the second is is understanding that the program of God continues even after we die. The passing of the baton of faith and the program of God continues. So first, the passing of the baton of faith to the next generation in those first six verses. And let me just begin by asking you, so that you can kind of ponder this throughout this point, what are you leaving to the next generation? Now, when I speak about generation here, uh, a generation typically refers to uh, groups of people that have been born around the same time period and in like a 15 to 20 year, uh, year span, and then they are regarded collectively. So we like to give them fancy names like the boomer generation, which is the older generation that's almost gone, uh, Generation X or Gen Z or things like that. So those are generations. So typically those are generations that are younger than us that we are referring back to. So what are you giving to the generation coming after you? Is this something lasting? 
Or is it something temporal? Is it something that will carry them through the sorrows and the joys of life consistently? Or are you giving them something that only works when life is going okay? Are you leaving the next generation with a greater love for Jesus? Or are you leaving them with a greater love for your favorite sports team or hobby or some other temporal pursuit? I've been to a few funerals the past couple of years of people who were, at least according to the people who were alive and well there at the funeral, were professing believers. And and one of the the main memories that was shared at, at one of these funerals by this woman's pastor was that she was really good at bridge, which is a card game if you're not familiar the other funeral that I went to highlighted that um, this man was a, a massive Georgia Bulldogs fan. Can't blame him. So much so that the pallbearers wore their favorite red and black UGA shirts to the funeral. Now, I'm not saying that people can't know these things about you at a funeral. Sometimes those are, those are things that we should talk about, and they're fun, and, and they're good memories to have about particular people and so it's not inappropriate to do that but I can say that I have left those places every time one feeling very empty and hopeless from the message that was communicated by preachers but I left every time thinking I want to leave my children I want to leave the next generation with something more I want it to be said at my funeral that that He left me a gospel legacy and a greater love for Jesus, period. Not a greater love for jiu-jitsu or the Tottenham Hotspurs, if you're a soccer fan. Or dare I say, books. But we see this in Abraham's life in verses 1 through 6, that Abraham has the opportunity to do this with his children. Now, just as a side note, I fully recognize that more than likely, God has not spoken to you and said, hey, you're going to live into a good old age that you will be full of years and then you will die. So you have this kind of like, all right, I got some years ahead of me. I I know how to prepare myself for that. Uh, Abraham has this opportunity. Most of us don't have that opportunity. Most of us don't know the day that we will die, the day that we will leave this earth. So just keep that in mind. But it, but it is something. So because we don't know that, we should have uh, uh, the, that kind of uncertainty of when uh, God will call us from this place constantly in our mind. Something that we could constantly be thinking about. So in, in, in the midst of that, we are preparing for our death. We are preparing the next generation for us to leave this world just as Abraham is doing here. So end of side note. So we have to recognize the unusual situation that Abraham is in at this point in the story of God. He is the line of promise. He understands that. He knows that. And he must carry on this line of promise into the next generation. So this is why you see in verse 5 that despite having more children with his second wife Keturah, he left all he had to Isaac. And he only gave gifts to to the other children mentioned. 
So he left his entire inheritance. Everything about him was left to this one child. Now this may look like an act of playing favorites amongst his children. It's, I mean, I would, would not blame you if you thought that. But since we know most of the story at this point, we should know that this isn't favoritism. Rather, it's, it's God sovereignly overseeing events to ensure the well-being of the line of promise. So he's done this consistently throughout Genesis. We've seen it in Abraham's life personally. Abraham blows it big time on more than one occasion where, where the, the most important aspect of him blowing it was that he was putting the line of promise in jeopardy. And God intervenes to protect the line of promise. And this is the same thing that's happening here. Because God has promised to bless Isaac in the same way he promised that he would bless Abraham. And this giving all he had to Isaac symbolizes this. And you also have another symbolic gesture in verse 6 when, he says, when it says Abraham, after giving them their gifts, so he does give them something. Apparently he gave them, gave them uh, some certain parts of land and some riches that he had, but he sends them away. He sends them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. So Isaac is the only one left in Abraham's presence. So this is admittedly curious, and it also sounds terrible (laughs) that he's sending his children away except for one. But what Abraham was doing And what Moses the author is making clear was removing them from any presumed position of privilege they may have thought they had. Again, he's protecting the promise. And this is to show that Isaac is the singular recipient of this promise. The singular offspring of Abraham, we could say. That God is going to bless, and this is made clear through Abraham's actions. He was ensuring that the baton of faith would be passed on to the next generations to come. So what are you doing to ensure the baton of faith gets passed on to the next generation currently? And while I'm I'm going to be honing in on parents here, okay? That's kind of the obvious target but, but I want you to understand and keep in mind that the next generation, uh, it may be your own children. Yes, I agree with that. That is the next generation coming up. But it's also those in your church family as well. Not all of us have our own kids. So we need to be thinking about this at, at corporately as a body as well. So I'll just ask this. Parents, are you modeling and church members, are you modeling what it looks like to live faithfully as a Christian in this world? Or do you look so much like the world that your kids couldn't tell the difference if you asked them? The percentage of kids that leave the church uh, when they hit college is staggering. Statistic after statistic after statistic is out there for, for your perusal, but it is staggering. It's overwhelming. And one of the key reasons this happens is parents who don't have a true and authentic faith of their own. It's one of the top reasons this happens. 
They don't spend time in God's word. They don't uh, lead their families in prayer. They don't have a good relationship with the local church. And so what you are doing when that happens, if you're in that boat, in an unspoken way, is, is you're actually dropping the baton of faith. I don't know if you've ever been to a track meet and you've seen the, the, the relay race and that they have to pass the baton and when somebody drops the baton, it's so embarrassing, but it's so dis- disastrous for the team. It just sets them all back. And oftentimes they lose because of that. But what we are doing when we, when we call ourselves Christian and we don't have this, this, this walk with Jesus that we say we should have, that's actually what we're doing when we're seeking to pass that baton on, on to our children, we actually drop it before they can take it. So the biblical fact of the matter is the need for all of us to be challenged to do the hard work of training, teaching, and discipling the next generation. In fact, the Bible is pretty intense about this endeavor. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up. A child in the way they should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians 6 4 in the New Testament. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Deuteronomy 4 9 says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Which means parents and grandparents are not off the hook. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen says, You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, talking about the promises of God, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Isaiah 38, 19 says, The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. And those are just a few. We are commanded to make known the faithfulness of God in Christ to the next generation. So how well are you making known the truth reality and relevancy of Jesus in your everyday life amongst your kids, amongst the next generation. And this is a ministry not only to the parents in the room, but to, but to all of you. All of you, whether you have children or not, are commanded to do this. You actually make, a, you actually make this commitment during our parent commissioning services when I ask this question, I know it can be very rote and you just kind of say, I'm going to say it because everybody else is saying it. But, it. but I ask this question. And do all of you present who have or will have a part to play in these children and parents' lives as we strive to do life together centered upon the gospel, promise to pray for these parents as they seek to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and nurturing these children with the gospel and to pray that these children will come to know Christ, love Christ, serve Christ all the days of their lives. Will you? And we all respond, I will. And Rebecca Morrow still struggles to get people to volunteer for the nursery. Next generation, you're welcome. 
So how can we apply that here at CTK? Yeah, volunteer for the nursery. That is, that is the next generation. But I want to say, too, that, that some of you might go, well, we need a youth ministry. We need somebody designated to do that. And, and yes, I think there, that youth ministry has its place. I think it's good. I know youth ministry has been used uh, in, in a lot of y'all's lives to, to bring you closer to Jesus. But I just want to say that that is not the answer alone that we need to have. It's actually way more comprehensive than that. And honestly, I think a lot more fun. In his excellent book, Faith That Lasts, Raising Kids That Don't Leave the Church, and if you haven't read this book, everyone should read this book. It is, I think, the best parenting book in the market right now. The best. And I don't say that without... I mean, I, there's a lot of parenting books out there, and I think this one's the best. It's by, written by a man named John Nielsen. He writes this, quote, I think the biblical model for passing along the faith from generation to generation is grounded in families. Fathers and mothers telling their kids about God and the church being continually built up through the evangelization of the younger generation. He goes on to say, it is important and a God-given purpose to invite other believers into the lives of our children as they grow up into faith. Meaning you can't give your kids all that they need in the gospel. They need other people coming into their life. And that involves you inviting this church family into your children's lives and asking them, disciple my my kids. Help me, help me, say Help me disciple my kids. Because there's something in you that I think one of my kids needs to see and experience and understand. We need to do that more as a church. Because this is all of our responsibility. And I just want to say this, this isn't just small children, the little ones in our church, but this is uh, high school kids, uh, college students that are in our midst, uh, even young adults. I am at the age now where some of these 20-somethings, I am old enough to be their father, which is like makes you feel really old. But these are the, this is the next generation that is coming up. That we all become actively involved in engaging and in discipling the next generation, not with the next cool thing, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes that just takes a fist bump, a fist bump during the passing of the peace to some of these kids. And asking them how their week was. What their favorite subject in school is. To just engaging them as another human being. So one suggestion, one suggestion with a couple of subpoints, uh, is is modeling what it looks like to know and love Jesus. So and there's a lot that could be put under this 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 title, but 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 really asking the question, what is a Christian what does a Christian look like? What does a Christian look like? So I'm going to give one corporate example and one private example that we can model this to the coming generation after I take a sip of water. So the first is corporate, which is a commitment to and a love for the local church that you attend. A commitment to and a love for the local church that you attend. So if the next generation doesn't see you doing this, doesn't see you loving the church and all of its imperfections, why should we expect them to? 
when they get to college? Why should we expect them to if we're not? One pastor said this, he said, quote, families that have uh, a strong ecclesiology, which is just a theological understanding of the church, that's what ecclesiology means, usually generate children who have a strong ecclesiology. These kids believe in and behave according to the primacy of the local church. Even godly families that do a lot of self-feeding on spiritual resources, but who do not have a strong theology and application of ecclesiology, will most likely generate underchurched or consumeristic kids when it comes to church. And I've seen it across the board. So what picture are you giving off to the next generation about the body of Christ? What, what is your ecclesiology like? Do you, do you show your children a love for Christ's bride or a disdain for it? Second is more personal. And that is having a rich and vibrant personal devotional life. Now, just the caveat, I know there's, I mean, I have five kids. Our house is busy and crazy. Um, and I know a lot of you have multiple children. Well, even if you have one kid, it's crazy. And I know that that sucks time away from you. So I'm not saying you have to have this perfect quiet time where you can spend a couple of hours just like studying God's Word every morning. Maybe, maybe you have that right now and be thankful for it. But once you have kids, they steal everything from you. So you have to develop your own kind of personal uh, personal um, disciplines here. So that's my caveat. But are you teaching others, the next generation specifically, what it means to seek God personally? Do your children see you see in you a love for God's word in a vibrant life of prayer? Do they do do they see you trust seeking to trust and know God even in suffering and pain and in loss? Do they see you repenting of sin? And not just saying a prayer of repentance to God, but coming to them and asking for forgiveness because you've sinned against them. Do they see that humility in you? Because if they see that humility in you, they're starting to see the gospel in you as well. Uh, Do they hear the gospel coming from your lips? Kids, do you see your parents doing this? If not, and your parents call themselves a Christian, ask them why. And see where that conversation leads you. So the question is held before you today that Professor Yancey asked his interviewees. What role does death play in how you ought to live your life? Because you will die, remember. And we must ensure that the work that God has begun in us will continue as God desires into the next generation. Because there a second point says the program of God, it continues on even after we die. So, so because of that, even in our death, there is hope. There, it, 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 if, we, if we have left it to God to do his work in his way while on this earth, as Abraham did. 
So I've heard it said that we are always one generation away from the gospel dying out. I don't know how true that is, but, um, I, but I, I think there, there, it does hold some truth. Meaning that if, if we aren't faithful to do this passing of the baton to the next generation, there is some risk here. At least it could be in your family or in your church. But we also have to remember that God is sovereign over his plans and purposes in this world and he will not let them fail. The church, if you, if you have any, any kind of hint of church history background, you know that the church has walked through tremendous suffering and persecution and yet the gospel has always prevailed. Which is why we have to remember that whatever comes our way, the program of God will continue. Even after all of us are long gone from this earth. Again, we all die. So that means others will be left to take up the task to continue God's program of promise. And we see it here in the text. Look at verse 11. Moses tells us, After the death of Abraham... God blessed Isaac his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. So this final verse points out two significant things about Isaac. First, God blessed him. Isaac is the one that is left to carry on God's program, and this happens right after his dad dies. He picks up right where Abraham leaves off which signals to us again to God's faithfulness to carry on these promises that he gave to Abraham, remember, way back in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me just read them again so that we understand what's happening here. Now the Lord said to Abram, remember his name was Abram back then, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's happening in Abraham's life, at the end of his life here. But it's happening. So here we have in verse 11, Abraham walking by faith in the blessing of his son, or in the the entirety of, of verses 1 through 11, in blessing his son. As if to say to Isaac, but also to a watching world, I believe in God Almighty. I believe in his promise to bring the snake crusher through my line. I believe that the Savior of the world is to come through this line of promise. So I'm blessing Isaac, the promised one. The second significant thing we see in this verse about Isaac is the report that he dwelt near Beer Lahai Roy. So this is, uh, this is the same place that God heard Hagar's prayer back in chapter 16, if you remember that. It's the same place where Isaac comes to, to meditate and pray and wait for his wife, Rebecca. It's the same place that in the next section of chapter 25, Isaac prays for his barren wife here. And God hears his prayer and answers his prayer favorably. 
So we see that Isaac dwells, uh, where Isaac dwells is not just a uh, dwelling in a, just another random piece of real estate. Where he just kind of pointed it out and said, that place has a good plot of land. That's where I, I think we could be pretty fruitful there. No, Isaac dwells in a place where prayer was effectual. It's very much like his dad did. Whenever God did something in his dad's life, what would Abraham do? He would go to a place, build an altar, and worship. And this is what Isaac continues to do. He goes to a place where God could be found. Abraham's God is Isaac's God as well. And much like his father Abraham, God blessed him in the exact same way. And through this blessing, we come to know, eventually, the truth and reality of Jesus Christ. So just in some closing remarks here, I like what uh, Pastor Tim Keller, he wrote in uh, an article in The Atlantic in 2021, um, pretty soon after he found out that he has uh, cancer that will eventually kill him. But he wrote this article titled, uh, Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. And he writes this. He says, but as, death, the, but as death, the last enemy became real to my heart, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart. Or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless in the face of death. So let us in the face of our own impending death grip these truths as well and be faithful to live lives that faithfully point the next generation to the promise of the gospel and allowing us confidently to know that even in our dying days we still do have hope. Amen. Let's pray.